Hello, hello, and welcome back to Data Femme, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I cannot wait to kick off this season two of the podcast. So as a treat, I have Ayodele Odabella and Elise Ramirez. You'll remember them from the intro to Data Femme season one. We are back. And what my two very good friends will be joining me to discuss are some of the underlying themes that you will expect to hear in Data Femme season two, mainly how to amplify the voices of traditionally marginalized groups in data science with a large focus on the Black community. Without further ado, let's head straight into the discussion. I can't wait to share with you what's in store for this next season. Okay, so we're recording. I'm so excited to have you guys here. You can hear it in my voice. And I guess we could just start catching up from, I mean, I know we talk all the time on Twitter, but we could start catching up from season one, which was before the world blew up. And y'all can tell me what you've been up to and how you're jobs have changed. Both of y'all have gone through some job transitions since then. Hey everyone, this is Ayadeli. I am now a data scientist working on driver risk mitigation at Samba Safety. So I started um, about a week into this job, we actually had to go on to mandatory working from home. So it's been a little bit difficult, but I'm just trying to stay like mentally healthy right now. Uh, my name is Elise Ramirez, and I'm happy to announce that I am now a senior analytics engineer at Netflix, my dream company. So excited to share that news. It's on the platform and infrastructure team. For the past few months, I was a program director at Insight Data Science in the San Francisco office, which was really great. Love that experience. Love being a fellow. And now currently I've also started to mentor Black and Latinx women specifically in the field of data science, really wanting to transition to the field, which has been a phenomenal experience, and also trying to expand that into a side hustle on the side. Definitely shameless plug there. Well, great. You know how in awe I always am of you two. And it's really cool to see that you're so high up at these companies in your roles, but then you're also doing your own projects. So it'll be cool to see how you merge the two. So I really think we should just delve into what's been happening lately in the world. I know that a lot of changes have happened on our Twitter profiles in terms of what we're posting to really be involved in not only ending racial bias in our field, AI, but also speaking out in support of the Black community and giving people knowledge of how they can help. So I would love to hear about how this has affected you. Yeah, you know, it's kind of really difficult right now. Honestly, I'm glad that there's more awareness out there. But at the same time, it's really hard to focus to work on a lot of projects and to like even exercise the same amount um, or put the same amount of caring into my work because of everything that's going on. So, you know, that's kind of been a struggle there, but it's also really hard watching the media kind of twist the narrative and focus on some of the negative aspects and not why these protests are happening. Um, we still don't have justice for Breonna Taylor and 
it's a difficult place to be in because we're seeing some of these mindsets change, but we know this is after hundreds of Black people have been killed in the streets by police officers. And it feels like it's never quite really enough until we see that action. Sometimes when I look at the posts that I see people making, I'm like, are you just writing this to be cool and hip right now? Or do you actually, you know, have a commitment towards making real changes and using that voice to consistently follow up? Funny enough, I feel like trying to have a distraction from everything that has been going on, I think my productivity has actually increased at work. I think for the most part, I was working maybe an additional four or five hours a day just so that I didn't have the time to look at my Twitter feed or to watch the news or whatever the case may be. And so from the standpoint of my managers and my coworkers, I was absolutely fine. And that was definitely giving them the wrong idea because I was definitely suffering a lot. And so going on Twitter, I feel like I have a really great network. You two obviously included in that. So I think I definitely saw a lot of action in terms of even people utilizing their own stages, their own platforms to, to really help and uplift the Black community however they possibly could. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, the news definitely started to focus more so on the riots that spawned from the protest instead of focusing on the senseless murders that have happened. And that has been incredibly frustrating to deal with. And so that that's basically how I took that on. And it, it was just being constantly internalized. I mean, how can we tell whether or not people are being genuine about, you know, putting not just their money, but their actions where their mouth is on Twitter and just in general, um, now that these conversations are happening more. So I'm glad the conversations have gotten to the point that even like really big companies are starting to say things like Black Lives Matter, putting money towards um, not just like the NAACP, but like bail funds. Um, and that typically doesn't align with some of these corporations' goals. So I do appreciate that some of them are showing a little bit of action, but we do need to have that change on the inside. Um, so one of the things that's been really popular, especially on Twitter, is kind of showing companies moments where they haven't been good to the Black and brown people in their organizations. Um, they put out a lot of statements saying, hey, you know, we support you. Um, and, and Starbucks is honestly one of the bigger ones. They're not allowing employees to show support for Black Lives Matter when they're at work. But their social media just keeps pushing this idea, um, posting Black Lives Matter, but they don't allow their employees to employ that same like freedom of speech. So we're looking to have that internal change. I think that's the thing that really makes it genuine. It's easy to put money towards a lot of these causes because of that social pressure. But this is like six years after Black Lives Matter really started. And it's just now after like there have been hundreds of Black people who have been extrajudiciously killed by cops in that six years. And it's just now at the point where people are like, oh, maybe we should really think about this. So it is a real like internal philosophy that we need to have. Um, and I think it starts with getting rid of people who are open and toxic and outwardly racist. Um, it's no longer being able to protect folks who might be important to your organization, but say, 
yeah, you know, we just put them in racial sensitivity training and don't really take action when there's plenty of complaints against them. So um, that also applies to when we're dealing with police, like for a lot of these officers involved in the death of Breonna Taylor, they've been involved in like sexual assault cases. They've been cited for other um, violent moments against citizens. So it's rare that these people are first time offenders. So we have to, as always, like just look internally and weed out some of these people. They shouldn't be able to come to work and be racist to their coworkers at all. TDWI has spent 25 years providing vendor-neutral, best-practice-based education on the hottest topics and data. So you know you can count on their seminars and online learning programs to keep your skills sharp. TDWI instructors are practitioners as well as educators, so they understand the business side of the data science industry as well as the tools you need to find your place in it. On top of that, TDWI offers virtual training for your teams, about which you can learn more at tdwi.org slash virtual training. DataFem listeners can save 30% on virtual seminars and online learning with the code DF30. So overall, I feel like I do have respect for those individuals and those organizations that gain new information and we're willing to change their minds. I think that's something that we can all acknowledge that we don't always get it right the first time. But at the same time, I definitely think in the next week or two, you know, once the the trends are, are different, once something new happens, I don't know, COVID part two, that's when we'll really see those who are genuine about the cause And I think we won't really be surprised because before these current events have transpired, those individuals and those companies were already making actions towards changing things uh, from the inside out already. So I don't think we'll be surprised by who remains by our side. But at the same time, those individuals are the ones that we really want by us. So I don't feel any kind of you know, animosity towards those who are just there for clout or anything along those lines, they will die out. But the people that are really there and really supporting Black lives and Black Lives Matter are are the ones that are really genuine. And those have been, those people have been there from day one. I, I think it's really just about people buying into this. So I think personally, it's always kind of been permanent. Like, it's here because I'm Black. I think about it because I'm a woman. I um, am at the intersection of these things and it does impact me. I don't want that awareness to die down. I want people to see that we are still protesting to make this change. Um, I think part of it is that we're getting, you know, we're getting support from areas of tech like VC funding um, and some people in tech who are willing to mentor juniors, which is really great. Um, We're also getting a lot of support uh, and just talking about the ways in which this bias affects us. I think that's one of the ways we, you know, just keep this going is to bring awareness and then have a lot of solutions. So um, that is one of the things that I'm planning on doing in my book um, is just offering more solutions <laughs> um, around dealing with these issues, especially how tech propagates that a lot. Yeah, that's a good point. I know that I follow um, data science Renee on Twitter, and I liked something that she said that, you know, if you're following the right people on Twitter already, 
you know, when a crisis happens, your timeline will be representative of the things you want to hear. Yeah, I, I definitely agree 100%. Um, I have definitely seen my own timeline kind of going back to normalcy, which also made me question maybe I, I'm not following the right people. Maybe I definitely need to look back at the network that I do have. Um, I feel for like Black individuals, this is something that is permanent. This is something that goes into pretty much every decision we make every single day. So for us, yeah, we can put it on the back burner. But at the end of the day, it's still there. And for those who aren't experiencing racism and haven't experienced racism since they were children, that necessarily isn't something that they have to think about, right? Like they get that choice and that privilege to decide when to think about it and what not to think about it. So for us, this is something that we have to continue to live with. But in terms of that awareness, that definitely is something that we can help to make sure that others are understanding what we deal with and why real change really needs to happen. In the past week, I feel like I kind of got exiled from this friend group that I had been investing in. And when I thought about it, and this is not like, this is just this friend group. I'm not making a blanket wide statement. But when I thought about it, I was like, huh, not only are they all white, but they're pretty much all straight. And then we have like a biracial queer person there. And I was the only person like that there. So obviously there would be some weird vibes and I just wasn't thinking about it. And then when I started thinking about it, I stopped being upset as I was like, I was like, oh, it does make sense that there is something that I might not be like thinking of myself like all the time, but like that is an important part. Yeah, I definitely wanted to to add to that. Um, in terms of like understanding your own privilege, I think that's something that I've definitely had. And even I, I feel a lot of guilt right now, especially being Dominican, there is a huge debate of are Dominicans actually considered black or not. And so for the longest time growing up, I, I didn't realize that I was black. I did not accept my blackness. And so I felt like I was taught to hate my blackness and to separate from it. And so it wasn't until just recently that I really was able to really accept and not only accept, but embrace that, that blackness that I have. And so that is incredibly difficult since a lot of my family still has not come to that realization. And so that has caused a lot of disparity, a lot of debates within my own family and even makes me feel guilty sometimes with harboring this pain of the Black community when some of my own family won't even accept being Black. I'm really glad you shared that because I've seen a lot of discussions that you're starting on Twitter and I've been following them and I think it's been really therapeutic for a lot of people who, who respond and feel really seen by those statements. I want to talk about both of your work in researching the ways that models incorporate bias. I know that we talked about this our last episode, the first episode of Data Femme, we got into this a little bit, but like now that there are more conversations happening about this, it would be interesting to hear what research you, you two are doing. Yeah, so um, it, it's honestly, it's not difficult in that the actual research is hard, but sometimes it's hard to hear. Um, understanding how far reaching this tech is and that in a lot of situations, there are people who um, are creating these products who are just unaware. 
However, they're kind of battling or at odds with some of these bigger companies who are trying to sell like their surveillance tech to ICE and to our government. Um, there are definitely people who can value and ignore the fact that these, um, the tech like PredPol and Compass are racially biased because they're in really large organizations and they, they know how much money um, is really in making this tech for big government <laughs> essentially. So it's a little bit disheartening to understand this, but I do know there are amazing, amazing researchers pushing for change in this area too. Yeah, definitely. Data collection is is definitely the very beginning of the problem. And it, it just leads into problems with everything downstream. I would say something else that I've definitely noticed in terms of the features that are being utilized, some individuals think that just by not including the feature of race or gender, that that is somehow accounting for the fact that, you know, even if they have a biased data set, well, I'm not including those features, so therefore my model can't be biased. And that is not correct by any means. That same information is embedded in so many other features that are just, it's just not obvious. It's not blatant. And we've had this con these conversations before where zip code can easily be an indicator of the majority of the races that are living there and income and things along those lines. There are a lot of other proxies for race and gender that are embedded in data that also need to be considered. And in, in addition to that too, we need guardrail metrics to really make sure that we aren't harming the individuals that this model is being implemented and it, it is you know, actually affecting. That's something that is rarely done. We don't have postmortems once a model is deployed. We aren't seeing the effect of this model because people honestly just don't care. And that's the real problem there. And, and as mentioned, deep learning models, especially, they are known to, to just be black boxes. So there's a trade-off between their performance and interpretability. So we have no idea how they're utilizing these features and to what degree they are and so it's definitely going to incorporate features that we aren't anticipating them to. And that's why they're having such drastic on our population and especially on the Black community. I think one of the reasons it's so hard to get back to these previous models is that honestly, most people in the industry aren't really documenting them the way they should. Um, so while many people are, aren't, aren't really going to like this, especially cost-wise, it's better to scrap a lot of these old models. And I say that because typically we would want to pay more attention and put more consideration into not just our training data, but how we're building features for these models. Um, the level of awareness about bias in the engineers who are creating these models, um, it's so much harder to try and go back and to add interpretability or explainability um, especially when these models are in production, they are around us, they're being used in products that we use. I think it's so much easier to try and switch that model out for one that you've created that is more equitable, that um, has a better representation of racial subgroups, of gender groups in our data, um, than to try and somewhat tinker or um, get have a V2 of a model that is already starting out bad. So the hard thing is we see a lot of talks on like 
explainability in ML. And a lot of times it's really talked about as here's another layer to tell you where the biases are and how to fix those. At the same time, we're not fixing the real issues. And I think that's the problem with trying to go back and back and fix them is that doesn't automatically deal with our training data, um, especially for facial recognition. Like there are a lot of big public models that are trained on IMDB data, but we just know from the makeup of dem the demographics in Hollywood that there are more white male actors than any other gender or race. So if that's where we're starting and that's where a lot of these pre-trained models that um, facial recognition startups are using, it's going to have that bias. Um, so it is, I think, better <laughs> um, to just really vet people for their knowledge about this and then understand that we have to recreate some of these systems from the ground up. I think the main problem is that models are really fueled by data. The more data you have, the more accurate it will be, the better performance, the better end result. And unfortunately, a lot of the data that is utilized is historical data that has been collected sometimes under the under, you know, the situation of racism where especially in healthcare, you know, there's definitely a lot more data on white males and white women than there are on black women or black men. And so historically, if we are still utilizing that data and collecting data at that same protocol, of course, every model that we built now is going to be biased. And so it, it becomes kind of that trade off of are we going to get rid of data, which is so valuable, and then start collecting it now? And if so, how is that going to change our model? How is that going to change our output? And so it really begins with really needing to have more representation in every field, in the life sciences, in medicine, in law, in everything, especially within data science and within tech, because there really needs to be representation every step of the way so that data collection, data analysis, and data science, everyone is putting in a perspective that is contributing to make sure that these data sets and these models are not harming anyone. So I'm actually writing a book to uncover what this bias is. I think the biggest problem is that engineers are unaware, honestly. Like so many of these educational mediums don't cover ethics. At worst, it's pretty much non-existent. And typically at best, there's one class or two on the subject. So the book I'm writing is to build a little bit of empathy within the reader and it's targeted towards practitioners. So if you are working at Google or Microsoft and working on these big impactful products, this book is for those people who want to understand how this bias can drastically impact human lives. And not only that, you know, it can cost our companies a lot of money and losses and bad headlines around this work that they're doing that the public a lot of times doesn't really agree with. It's also here to create some solutions that people can use, some code examples, um, outlining models that are more interpretive, and ways to help them push for policy. Um, it's really important for engineers who are working on a lot of this ML and AI to have good relationships with their executives, um, to be able to have some pushback about how some products and some projects are just unethical. Um, you know, it's not to say that there isn't really a case for deep learning, but we want to give practitioners tools to interpret these black box 
ethics models, um, focus on having human in the loop systems instead of, unfortunately, people tend to blindly just kind of see an answer from a computer and think it's right and not question how it got to that answer or collected that sensor data. So it's really about making engineers just more critical of their work, um, trying to test it for bad actors and um, keeping in mind the fact that there are people who will use their tech for malicious purposes. So what are they doing to mitigate that risk? It's really important. I think I'm taking it from the standpoint of one, elevating myself within this career field, making my presence known, being my most authentic, genuine Black self, uh, and not apologizing for that and and knowing that I can speak the way that I want to speak, dress the way that I want to dress and just be me and let people know that I, yes, I'm black. Yes, I'm a woman. And yes, I can kick ass in data science. And I also want to bring people along with me. I had a pretty rough journey just getting to where I am right now, but I am so blessed for all the experiences that I had and all the people that I've come across, good, bad, or ugly, I think it helped me to shape who I am today. And so what I want to do is make sure that it gets easier for the next Black girl who comes around or the next you know, Latinx girl who decides she wants to go into tech. So with that, that led me to want to really mentor people that look like me and in terms of, you know, onboarding them to the tools and concepts, what do you need to know? What, what resources should you be utilizing right now? And utilizing all the information and experiences that I've gained and making sure that I'm giving that to them, which is what I'm trying to build into a brand and a company called DataSys, where it's really data for sisters in STEM. And so what I really want to do is just move it forward. I want to see more beautiful Black women in data science because that just gives me life. And so anything that I can do to move that agenda forward, I absolutely will. Well, both your initiatives are amazing and I can't wait to stay updated on them. And as both prominent figures in the data science industry, I want to move more from discussing AI models to how we can increase Black presence in the data science industry. What can we do to make our environments more comfortable for Black individuals and make them move up in the industry and stay? So, you know, it's not just an environment of mentorship that we have to change, but genuinely making people feel like they're part of the team. So one of the things I love about my job right now is that no one's afraid to say when they don't know something. Um, data science is so vast and so incredibly deep. There's no possible way that everyone knows any, that, that someone knows everything. It's just not the case. So working in an environment where I'm not just scared to say, hey, you know, I don't know this. And it's not going to be reflective of my race or gender. I think that's always been the issue um, and kind of tends to hold people back more. So that's honestly really rare. I think that's one of the first big steps. And then on top of that, you know, we have to get people who are interested in getting into data science over a lot of the math fears that they have. So I was in remedial math my entire life. Like my parents paid thousands of dollars for math tutoring for me in high school so I can get into a good college. And I was in remedial math all the way through college. Um, 
it wasn't until grad school and really understanding how much I enjoyed statistics that I got over this. So I think by understanding, you don't have to naturally get this um, to be able to work hard and practice until it makes sense. But for a lot of people that I've talked to, it's one of the biggest barriers to entry for them. And I think just having more relevant cultural examples, you see like a lot of data science projects with toy data sets like Titanic data or German credit card data or predicting stock prices, but that's not, um, you know, the most relevant kinds of data applications for a lot of people. If you bring that down to a level that's more interesting, um, people are starting to get interested. Um, and I think that it opens the door for them to be comfortable enough to stay. So knowing that there are people out here like myself who do projects on Kanye West lyrics or um, things like predicting like shoe store sales, things like that are more at a level that it's easier for someone who maybe doesn't already know the math to get into. It's, it's amazing how if you consider all the problems and all the reasons for why there isn't a lot of Black representation, especially in data science, it goes back so far it goes back to your education as a child and your access to great resources and teachers who care and teachers who aren't racist and want to see you move forward. What struggles do you think Black women face as compared to Black men in data science? I think one of the biggest things that Black women deal with more is that we feel like to be professional, we have to keep up with so many things like our hair and nails, our makeup and clothing. Um, it does sometimes feel overwhelming because there is, you know, who I really am and who I present as professionally. And I will say working from home has changed that a little bit, but especially in these traditional industries, their corporate rules still kind of apply. So I have I've heard from people who feel um, still the need to put on makeup, put on a dress shirt before, like just sitting down for their first meeting of the day. So I think it might be easier for Black men to be successful in companies that are typically known for having that boys club, like finance or traditional engineering. Um, and I've just seen a lot less Black women in these fields um, and have heard, you know, the stories about what the toxic environment tends to be like from both angles of being a racial minority, but also being a woman. Um, so I think in some of these industries, it might be a little bit easier for Black men to have successful careers. Um, it's kind of like having one um, aspect of, the, of you is marginalized versus um, that increases like exponentially when we start to combine them. Um, and so I think they, there's absolutely still some discrimination there by in those racial factors, but um, it's not really as compounded alongside gender. It's definitely a compounding effect to be both Black and a woman on top of that. In my own experience, I have dealt with a lot of sexual harassment in the workplace, usually by the hands of Black men, which I think just makes it that much worse, um, just because it, it reemphasizes, you know, that, that old stereotype that Black women are very promiscuous and, you know, it's just that sexual objectification that really downplays the significance of Black women and what we hold intellectually and things along those lines, which is incredibly frustrating. 
And so I think it's definitely easier for Black men to assert themselves into positions of leadership and, and things along those lines. And so for what I've experienced, it definitely seems like being a man has more weight than being Black in the workplace. So they definitely have a lot of privileges that us as Black women definitely do not get. I'm really sorry that that's happened to you. And I mean, it's just, it's, it breaks my heart to think of that, um, that that's something that you have to go into the workplace harboring. Um, so, you know, you're very strong and both of you are. Both of you are kind of my gurus when it comes to making this podcast since you were my first guests. And, you know, I just feel like both of you have been like consistent inspiration for me. So now that we're in season two and I'm really excited about like all the things I've thought about lining up, I would love to hear your take on where you would like to see season two go in, in terms of being a platform of visibility and advocacy for black women specifically. Yeah, I, you know, I think you were starting off right to begin with. Um, I've seen some of the people you're talking to as guests, and I think, honestly, it's about amplifying the right voices and letting a lot of the experts um, have a bigger stage. So we have seen in the past few weeks, there's um, been a lot of talk on Twitter about, you know, where that bias in our data really lies and we have to listen to the right people. So, um, you know, I think you're doing the right thing by just being helpful, amplifying a lot of these researchers. Um, and so many people are going to be coming to data science from um, industry backgrounds. So having in a perspective of people from academic backgrounds, it's just nice to be able to see a good mix of that. So um, I'm, I'm super excited. Even just personally, I've seen so many more Black women in data science on my timeline, seeing you retweet them. Um, I think that that's, that's the biggest thing we, we can really even ask for. That's it. I absolutely love the platform that you have created. I am so proud of you and I'm so happy to be here once again. Always an amazing experience. And so what I think you're doing and have been doing is completely genuine and it's completely authentic in creating a platform that allows people like myself to come on here and speak vulnerably and honestly about the struggles that we are going through, but then also reaching for the future and mentioning, you know, actions that are happening and what we're doing to contribute to it. So the fact that you are enabling us to have this voice and to have this platform is just absolutely incredible. And I've listened to your other podcast and I feel like you're always hitting great topics with great speakers. And so moving forward, you know, I'm expecting nothing but excellence at this point. And, you know, I just can't wait to see where you keep going from here. Well, thank you so much to both of you. I really appreciate you both coming full circle with me. We started off season one together. We're starting off season two of Data Femme together. 
for all of you listening, this is our season premiere. So going forward, please continue to engage on social media. Definitely go to the Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash datafem. And if you want to sign up for the overall newsletter from dikayodata.com, I post career advice and tutorials and all around updates from the data science community. So Please stay in touch and stay in tune and I will be back with you next week.